We can open your Bibles to the book of Romans. Today marks the day that we get into the main body of Paul's letter to the Romans. We have spent a few weeks just settling in to Romans, trying to get our minds around the story behind it, the big ideas of the letter, which are found especially in two verses, Romans 1, 16 and 17. You can look at those. Maybe remember these or have heard these. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written, the just will live by faith. Romans is a long letter filled with good news about God's Son. Good news that was promised beforehand in the scriptures. Good news about how the God who made us would come to our rescue through his son Jesus, the one and only righteous man, to make a way through Jesus for us to be right with God through faith. This is a book filled with good news for everyone, regardless of age, ethnicity, status, gender, background. But then in the very next verse, everything changes in Romans. Paul goes in a very unexpected direction. I think a direction that if we're honest, we maybe wish Romans didn't even go. Look at verse 18, Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Beginning in that verse, Paul turns to a topic that I'm pretty sure none of us likes to talk about or perhaps to even think about, but one Paul knew we all needed to hear, the righteous wrath of God. And Paul will stay on this topic, this same topic, for a long time long time. As just one example, you could look at the next chapter. Romans chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Paul says in Romans 2, 8, for those who are self-seeking and who do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. And that continues throughout most of even the third chapter of Romans. So I will tell us up front that this section is not going to be our favorite section of Romans. Nor should it be, necessarily, because it is almost exclusively bad news. But I'd go further than that. This isn't just like not most people's favorite (laughs) section of the Bible. What Paul says in this section about the wrath of God is extremely unpopular. I mean, if you tell someone there is a God out there who is full of love and mercy, you probably won't face a lot of resistance to that. Maybe somebody would say, oh, tell me a little more. But if you start talking about a God who is angry with the wicked and who feels indignation, against them 
every day. How well will that go over? And yet Paul, in his most significant letter that he wrote, spends over 60 verses in a row on this topic. And that is not to mention all the other places in Romans or elsewhere that he talks about this. And this is certainly not just something Paul talks about. I mean, we read a very intense psalm earlier, Psalm 7. We read a graphic portrayal in Revelation 6 of people trying to flee from the wrath of God and the wrath of the Lamb. They are pleading in that text in Revelation for the rocks to fall on them because they don't want to fall into the hands of the living God. I was reading, uh, you know, even in, in Jesus, I mean, contrary to popular opinion, right, or popular portrayals of Jesus, you, I mean, think of what he said. Think of the things that he preached. He spent a lot of time talking about judgment, about hell, about people being banished from him, about people being thrown into what he says is the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus, who loved us more than anybody, never shied away from this topic. I was reading this week from one of the most famous sermons ever preached in America. In the 1700s, by a guy named Jonathan Edwards, it was entitled, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Just listen to a bit of what was in that sermon. Edwards said, The reason why the ungodly are not fallen already and why they do not fall now to judgment is only that God's appointed time hasn't come yet. There is nothing, he says, that keeps wicked men any one moment out of hell except for the mere pleasure of God. There is no lack of power in God to cast wicked men into hell at any moment. Men's hands cannot be strong when God rises up. The strongest have no power to resist him, nor can any deliver out of his hands. He is not only able to cast wicked men into hell, he can most easily do it. And they deserve to be cast into hell so that divine justice never stands in the way of God doing this. On the contrary, justice calls out loudly for an infinite punishment. This, this kind of stuff is hard to read. It, it's, it sounds extreme to our ears, but is that really that much sharper than what we read in Psalm 7 or Romans 1 or Revelation 6? But, it, but in our own day, in America, we tend to shy away from talking about the wrath of God. Now, perhaps that is out of fear of being viewed as a bunch of crazy people. Or perhaps we've, maybe we heard preaching that we felt like, you know, they were just trying to scare people into heaven. And so we've responded by simply never talking about the wrath of God against sinners. Or perhaps... We actually like to think of God only in a certain way. And thinking of God as burning 
with anger against sinners every day isn't the picture we want to think about. But here's the thing. At the end of the day, how do we want to present God? As he is, or as we might wish he were. How, more importantly than that, how much do we want to know God? Do we want to know God as he really is? As he says he is? Or would we rather think of God as simply what we might like him to be? I hope you say with me, I want to know God as he is. I want to see him and know him as he is. Because I love him and he's good. He's perfect in every way. As God says in Jeremiah, he he says, don't let let the, the wise man boast in his wisdom, nor the mighty in his might, nor the rich in his riches, but let the one who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. You want to know God? He is what he says he is in the Bible. He is love. And he is a righteous God who feels indignation at sinners every day. Now, having said this, there's one more thing I want to say about the wrath of God before getting into the text. And that is that the wrath of God, I want to say it up front, is not bad. The wrath of God is good. Now, of course, we all realize that there is such a thing as bad anger or sinful anger. We are all guilty of it. Getting, you know, torqued over stuff that didn't really matter. Flying off the handle when something just didn't go our way. Even lashing out with angry words at at someone who really didn't do anything to deserve it. Or at least had no intention of harming us. Perhaps it goes without saying, but that sort of irrational anger that is unbridled, unhinged, undeserved, is absolutely not what the Bible is talking about when it talks about the anger of God. For starters, God is incredibly patient and very slow to anger. Yet, God's anger does burn hot against sin. And one day his anger will fall. And so we might wrestle with whether the wrath of God is good or not. I mean, wouldn't it be better for God to be all loving and never be angry with anyone? Wouldn't that be better? It's easy to say that. But what kind of love is it that does not hate evil? I mean, think about it. Is that that really what we would want? To have a God who does not care about evil. A God who can watch injustice, greed, hatred, abuse, and not be moved at all by it. I mean, we, we, are, we are pretty messed up ourselves, right? But think about what happens in our own hearts when we hear of horrible evils and atrocities. I mean, what happens to us? I just thought of a few things that come to my mind. Like, about a year and a half ago, a guy walks into the Mall of America grabs a five-year-old kid and throws him off the third-story railing. When you heard that, what did it do to you? It's been almost, what, 20 years since 
terrorist killed thousands of our fellow citizens, and we got those pictures blazing into our minds. I mean, what did you feel when you saw it? When you watch a movie about the Holocaust, or perhaps even more, maybe you've done what I've done and gone to the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C., what did you feel when you left there? What would you think about someone who could witness these things and feel nothing? And these are just a few examples of things we've actually heard about. But the truth is, there are so many horrific evils happening every single day that we never hear about. What if we could see it all for just one day? If you could see what the billions of people in this world are doing in just one day. I think we would be overwhelmed by what we saw. But what if you could see it and you felt no anger? Do you know what I think we would question if somebody could see it and feel no anger? I think we would question that person's love. Love that does not rise up in anger when the vulnerable are attacked or abused, for example. What kind of love is that? Is that really the kind of God we want? If sin, violence, hatred, wickedness doesn't do anything to God, if he doesn't care about injustice and murder, if none of these things provokes his anger in the least, wouldn't we question his love? What's my point? God is not angry with the wicked because he is bad. God is angry with the wicked because he is good. The wrath of God may make us uncomfortable, and that is understandable, but the wrath of God against the wicked is not wicked. It is completely righteous, and it is a result of his goodness and his holiness and his love. Now, more could be said about this topic in general, but I want to get to the text. Look at Romans chapter 1, verse 18. Romans 1, 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now, I just want to notice a few things in that verse. The first question you got to deal with is how Paul goes from talking about such good news to such bad news, like, so quickly. I mean, verse 16 and 17, it's like, really good news. Verse 18, frightening, devastating news. What's the connection? Seems so abrupt. I'm not ashamed of the good news. It's God's power to save. God reveals his righteousness. We can be right with God through faith, for the wrath of God is falling from heaven. How do you go from one to the other? There are probably several connections. I think you could think of a lot of these if you would take the time to think about them on your own. I think after hearing Paul talk about the good news of how God can save us, what might we ask? Why do I need saving? The answer, because the wrath of God is falling from heaven on all the unrighteous. Or perhaps we hear Paul telling us, you can be right with God. And we ask, Why do I need to be right with God? What's the big deal with that? The answer, because God's wrath falls on all who aren't right with God. 
Or perhaps we read the verses and we ask Paul one more time, why are you so eager to tell everybody so quickly about the good news? Because the wrath of God is already falling. In other words, there, there are many reasons Paul goes from good news to bad news. And perhaps above everything, we should remember that it is ultimately the bad news of God's wrath against our unrighteousness that makes the good news of the gift of the righteousness of God so good. Second thing you might have noticed, it does not say the wrath of God will be revealed. It says the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. Now, next time we're in Romans, we're going to talk about this more. But, but it's worth noting today, God's wrath is already fallen here and now. We probably think of God's wrath as something he will pour out in the future. And in fact, Paul normally talks that way. But God's wrath is not only for the future. This text begins with how God's wrath is already being revealed. Next time we'll look at more of like what that looks like, how God pours out his anger today. But it's enough to say now that God is as angry today as he will be one day with sinners. Third, notice in that text in verse 18 that God's wrath is against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. All sin dishonors God. Therefore, all sin matters to God, not just some sin. We might think God's only angry with what we think of as big sins. But Paul says here, God's wrath falls on all ungodliness and unrighteousness. And if you'll read through the next couple chapters of Romans, by the end of it, it'll be clear we're all guilty of a whole bunch of ungodliness and unrighteousness. Every single one of us. Then lastly, in verse 18, notice how it ends. This is what drives the rest of the text today. God's wrath falls on all who in their unrighteousness suppress the truth. God isn't angry with people because they don't know the truth. God is angry with people because they do know it and they try to hold it down and ignore it and suppress it. But that raises the question, what truth is Paul talking about? What truth do human beings know but try to hold down or ignore or suppress? What do you think? It's in the next verse, verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, specifically his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. I mean, there it is. It is not hard to see. Is that the truth that human beings know but try to hold down is that there is somebody out there who is responsible for all that is here. Somebody, somebody that's been around longer than the stuff that I see. There is a God out there who is really, really powerful. And notice, this truth is not like covered up or shrouded in the darkness. It's in plain sight for everybody to see. When, what, what does Paul say? It's what's known about God is plain. How, God's shown it to them. Where? How? 
in the things that have been made. Ever since the creation of the world, the world's been proclaiming there is a God out there that's really powerful and you ought to care about him. You ought to care. Now, of course, this is not to say that God has revealed everything about himself that we need to know through the world around us. This text is not saying God has revealed everything you need to know just by looking around you. A person needs God's special revelation in the Bible to know God personally and to know Jesus in a saving way. So Paul's point isn't we know everything about God through creation, but we do know something. We know enough to know we need to know more. And we certainly know enough to know we ought to care. What brings God's wrath is not what humans don't know. What brings God's wrath is what we do with what we do know. As Psalm 19, which we read earlier, says, you walk outside, the heavens declare to you the glory of God. Day after day, the sky is proclaiming the handiwork of God. Their voice goes out to all the earth. But yet human beings suppress the truth that they can clearly perceive. And for Paul, what's the result? You see it at the end of verse 20. So that they are without excuse. Without excuse for what? Without excuse for what we've all done with what we've all known. There will never be a person who stands before God at the judgment who claims, I've got an excuse for what I did. Paul will say later, you know what people are going to say at the judgment? In defense of themselves? Nothing. Every mouth will be shut. Now in our last verses for today, Paul just fills out the picture. Not just of what we've done, but what we failed to do. Look at verse 21. For although they, like human beings, knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. That's our story. The story that began in the Garden of Eden and has been replayed in one way or another in every single generation since. Though we knew God, though we knew there was a powerful creator who was worthy of honor, we didn't honor him as God or give thanks to him. And that right there is the fundamental sin of every human being. It's where all sin begins. It's just with the failure to give God the honor he deserves. God is worthy of being honored. He's worthy of glory because he's created all things and our story is one of not giving back to God what he deserves. That is the human story. Instead, we rebel. We say things in our hearts like, I will be my own God. I will live for my honor, for the sake of my name, 
for the fulfillment of my pleasure. And Paul would say, you know a good description of that? Claiming to be wise, we've become fools. And perhaps, perhaps because God's wired us to know him and care about him and worship him, perhaps because of that, we seek when we turn from God to fill that longing and that void with anything else we can find. I mean, look at verse 23. We, we don't just ignore God. We exchange God. Because God has wired us to know him and care about him. And when we refuse to do that, we don't just do nothing. We exchange the glory of the immortal God for, for images of people and beasts, birds, reptiles. And this reminds us of what Adam and Eve did in the garden. It reminds us of what Israel did with the golden calf right after God rescued them from Egypt. And this is what we still do. The specific forms of the gods we fashion in our culture may look different, but, but do you really think we are less idolaters today in America than those who carved wooden images from their backyards and bowed down to them? In fact, maybe we are worse for what we do because we don't even realize or admit we're worshiping anything. We exchange the glory of God and the joys of knowing the one who made us for the things he's made. We chase after people, looking to them for happiness that only God can provide. We chase after fame and fortune as if that will really satisfy we chase after gods of sex and pleasure only to find out that they never bring the fulfillment we foolishly thought they would. And when we get tired of the gods we've already tried out, we'll just make new ones. As John Calvin famously said, the human heart is a factory of idols. And what is God's response for all we've done? For how we've treated him? As if he's of no value as if he's not worthy of our honor or our thanks for how we've treated those he's made in his image with little love or compassion. How does God feel about this? To use the language of the psalm, God is a God who feels indignation every day. Why? Why is he so angry? Because we keep suppressing what we know. We keep rebelling. We keep harming and hurting each other, even though we're all made in God's image. And more than anything, God's angry because we scorn his name. We just don't care about him. In the end, God pours out his wrath to uphold his name that we drag through the mud. This is, this is only the beginning of what I imagine will be quite a sobering study for us. I mean, after all, what is more serious and sobering than the wrath and fury of the Almighty God? But, but as we close, I, I, I just want to think a little bit. What are we supposed to do with this text today? Some of these same things will be true throughout this whole next segment, next section. What should we do when we hear stuff like this? The first thing, the first thing I want to encourage us all to do is to stop looking to ourselves or to anyone 
or anything but Jesus for rescue from the wrath of God. I mean, after what we've seen today, I mean, if you picture God, the creator, wetting his sword, getting his bow ready, pulling back his deadly arrows, ready at any minute to release them against the unrighteous. Do you really think that there's hope in yourself to escape from the wrath to come? Now, you you may be here and you may think all this God's wrath stuff is nonsense. None of this is true. There is no coming day of judgment. Okay. I, I mean, I hope God's spirit will convict you otherwise, but I can understand that, that maybe that's your attitude. That's what you think. You think this is, doesn't matter because it's not true. But if you do believe what you've heard today, that God is a righteous judge who feels indignation towards the wicked every day and that his wrath falls on every single kind of ungodliness and unrighteousness, do you really think there's hope in anybody else but the Son of God to rescue you from the wrath to come? As Jonathan Edwards put at the end of that sermon, he said, because it wasn't all bad news, the sermon wrath, sinners in the hands of an angry God. This is where he went in it. He said, now you have an extraordinary opportunity. A day wherein Christ has thrown the door of mercy wide open and he stands there calling and crying with a loud voice to poor sinners. It is a day wherein many are flocking to Jesus from the east, the west, the north, and the south. Many that were very lately in the same miserable condition that you're in now are now in a happy state with their hearts filled with love to him who loved them and washed them from their sins in his own blood. And he says, how awful is it to be left behind, to see so many others feasting while you are pining and perishing. I mean, the first application of any study of the wrath of God is run to Christ and live. Second, I want to encourage you who have fled to Christ for refuge to thank Jesus and to thank God the Father for sending his son to rescue you. Did you you notice, even in this text, that the most basic sin of human beings is to do what? Or to fail to do what? It is to fail to give God honor or thanks. Let the table today, those of us who will partake of this, be a place of thanksgiving today for Jesus. And lastly, how can we how can we talk about this? Think of how Jesus has borne our wrath 
the wrath of God that was, should have fallen on us? How can we think about this? Sitting in here and then think of people that we're going to see this afternoon and not have any compassion. The challenge would be just to have compassion and warn people you know of the wrath to come. I, mean, I think what it comes down to, at least in my own life, and I, I think this is probably the case for many of us, is not actually whether we have some fears or hesitancies to talk. I think on this topic of the wrath of God and, and whether we'll actually show compassion and warn people, I think what it comes back to is whether or not we really believe what we've heard today. I mean, it is one thing to talk about the wrath of God in the abstract. It is another thing to sit down with someone, a neighbor or a friend this week, and to look at them and to really believe that apart from Jesus, they're going to face the wrath of God. We might say, well, well, you know, they, they don't believe that there's any sort of judgment coming. In fact, they'd think I'm nuts if I, if I actually mentioned that. You are probably right about them. But listen, I am not asking us to think about them and what they might believe. I am challenging us about what we believe. Do we even believe what we're talking about today? Do we believe that the fury of God will fall on the heads of family members who don't run to Jesus, on the heads of those we see this afternoon, on all those who haven't bowed the knee to Jesus. I think at the end of the day, it comes down to that, whether we actually believe anything we've talked about today. If, if we do... Think if you were still in their shoes and what we've talked about today is true. Wouldn't you hope someone out there would have the courage and the compassion to warn you to flee from the wrath to come? Let's pray. Father, I give thanks to you. The thanks due to your righteousness. We do not question you today. We thank you for being who you are, a God of love who hates sin, who will judge it all. We thank you today for Jesus, the propitiation for our sins, who, who bore your wrath so that we could be forgiven. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters here today. When, when, when we're tempted, when Satan tempts us to despair this week, help us to look up and to see him there, the one who made an end to all our sin. Help us as we come to the table to rejoice and to be thankful for Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.